one of the uh, most iconic books uh, produced in the 1980s uh, was a book called The Children's Birthday Cake Book, produced by Women's Weekly. Uh, it was definitely the most popular book in my primary school library. Uh, you would often find um, a little group of children gathered around that book uh, at playtime, uh, all you know, drooling over the images of these elaborate and colourful birthday cakes. Uh, this was the book that every child would burrow out when their birthday came around. And uh, every party I went to had at least one of these creations um, at the party. Uh, but in my experience of actually eating a number of these cakes, I've got to tell you that how they look, very different to what you would expect when it comes to how they taste. Uh, to me, the whole point of a cake is eating it. It has to taste good. And yet I can tell you that um, from my memory, every one of those cakes had the most horrible, disgusting, dry, uh, you know, the worst kind of cake ever invented underneath all of the colour and all of the uh, elaborate lollies and things. And so they looked, they always looked great on the outside, but inside they were absolutely um, horrible. And I start with that because the difference between how something looks on the outside and how it really is on the inside, that's actually the theme of um, this chapter. Uh, this is where God uh, chooses a new king to replace Saul. Um, but all the way through the chapter, you notice that these little references to seeing, you know, how, how God sees, uh, how Samuel sees, uh, so we can talk about the difference between you know, how God sees and how we see, and the contrast, it's drawn right through. And, it, and so it's a chapter that actually challenges us because we too, do tend to judge by appearances. Uh, we do tend to make our assessment of things and uh, people, circumstances, by what we see. And what we see in this passage is that how we see ends up being very different to how God sees something. And so it's a challenging passage because when, we, when our perception of things is different to God's, then we're actually seeing wrong. And so this chapter is going to help us to get our perspective right, to start to see things from the way God sees them. So let's learn from this chapter how God sees and how we see and how we can get our perspective to line up with his. Uh, first, we need to think about how we, how we see our circumstances. And that's in this first um, opening section. Uh, we're told in verse 1 that Samuel was grieving over Saul. Okay, the, the last chapter, we looked at the last week, Saul was rejected as the king because of his disobedience. And Samuel was grieved by that. He grieved for some time. Now, why was Samuel grieved? Well, you've got to think about all the... the, the um, uh, the investment that Samuel made into Saul. Remember right at the start, when Israel asked for a king, Samuel was completely against it. He's like, no, no, God is your king. We're not doing that. Uh, and yet God showed Samuel, no, no, that, this is part of the plan. Uh, God helped Samuel to bring all of that about. Um, Samuel invested all of that time into uh, teaching the people how it would work, uh, guiding both Israel and Saul in the process of becoming a king, and after all of that investment, after all that work in setting it up, Saul, this king, turns out to be a guy 
who just wants to go his own way, just has his own rules, doesn't want to follow God's rule. And in the end, Samuel had to rebuke Saul. He had to tell him that he's rejected as a king, which would have been a very difficult thing to do. But what a tragedy for the nation. Israel's first king is a total disaster. And Samuel was very grieved over that. He was grieved over the state of Saul's heart. He was grieved over the fact that Israel was led by a disobedient king who led the people in unfaithfulness. And Samuel was very upset that the whole way that the kingship thing has gone in Israel, from Samuel's perspective, was a total disaster. So no wonder he was grieved. But as verse 1 tells us, God comes to Samuel and he goes, look, how long are you going to be grieved? Get up, I've got a new step. And so God is telling Samuel that he actually sees it differently to Samuel because God looks at this situation from the perspective of his sovereignty. And God is just about to unfold a brand new chapter in the life of Israel where he provides them a better king, one much better than Saul anyway. Uh, and so what looks to Samuel like the nation falling apart and all of the kingship thing going down the gurgler, uh, God reveals to Samuel that, no, no, there's some, there's some good times ahead. And so he says in verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself for him, uh, for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel, initially he's too afraid to go because even though Saul is the rejected king, Saul is still on the throne. And Saul will see this as treason. And Samuel's kind of fearful for his life. Uh, God gives Samuel this um, cover. He says, if you go and do a sacrificial meal, that will divert any unwanted attention. You'll be able to carry on uh, this without bringing any trouble upon yourself. And Samuel goes to Bethlehem. When he gets there, the elders are all like afraid and trembling. And they're saying to Samuel, do you come in peace? Why would they say that? Well, think about the state of the nation. Think about Saul. Uh, think about how it's all going horrible. And uh, here a prophet turns up to your hometown. What are you thinking? He must have a message of judgment. But Samuel says, no, no, I come in peace. And he goes and he asks if all of um, Jesse's sons can be rounded up for a special meal together. Now, I just want you to notice, though, notice the difference of perspective. So Samuel's looking on the, the whole way the kingship has fallen apart. And he sees this. This is a nation about to crumble, to, to, to go astray. And notice the difference between how God sees it. Uh, for Samuel, it felt like all of that effort that he'd put into making Saul king was all just a waste of time. All that investment into Saul. And it's borne no fruit. It's actually ended in disaster. And, you know, sometimes I think we can feel like that when it comes to serving the Lord. You know, we might invest a lot of time into a ministry or into a person and there's no fruit. And we can feel like the whole thing's a disaster. The whole thing feels like a waste of time. And we can even feel like giving up. 
And yet, notice how God encourages Samuel in this time. He, he tells Samuel, look, there are better times ahead. Okay, I'm still in control, God says. He, he reminds Samuel of the bigger plan. And he reminds Samuel that a true king is coming. And that's the key. There's, there's a true king coming. That's the encouragement that Samuel needed. Hey, that's the encouragement we need as well. There's a true king coming. Okay, whenever life or serving the Lord feels like it's in vain, it never is. Why? Because there's a true king coming. So keep that in mind. That's perspective. Now, I'd like to spend more time on that, but I really need to get to this next point because this is where the heart of it all is. And it's about God's perspective on the heart. Okay, so we just looked at God's perspective on circumstances. Now let's think about God's perspective on the heart. And that's in verses 6 to 7, where Samuel, he, he's at this meal. He has uh, Jesse's family there. Uh, the sons are all starting to line up in Samuel's presence. And already Samuel's starting to make assessments uh, based on how they look. And as he's looking at these sons, he, he's, he spots Aliab. And instantly Samuel's thinking, hey, here we go. This guy, surely he's the one that God's going to choose. Uh, that's what it says in verse 6. And uh, what, what is it about Aliab? Why did Samuel think that's got to be the one? And it all came down to his looks. Uh, what's implied in verse 7 was that Aliab was a tall fellow, very um, perhaps uh, broad shoulders, big, strong-looking fellow, kind of looked like a warrior maybe. And Samuel's thinking, that's got to be the one. He just looks like a king. Now, what does that remind you of? If you've been in this series, remember when Saul was first elected as king? Remember what Samuel said to the people? Look at this guy. Yeah, apparently he was the most handsome fellow in all of Israel, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He looked like a king, just his appearance. Now you would think Samuel would have learned from all of that, that appearance doesn't count for anything because if they don't have the character, it's all just going to go the same way Saul went. And yet even though Samuel knew all of that, the moment he spots Eliab, he's ready to get the oil out. He's ready to anoint this guy because he just looks impressive. Which tells us how prone we are to make assessments based on appearance alone. If Samuel could get it wrong, then surely we can too. In fact, this whole thing with outward appearance, this, this being allured to outward appearance, do you know that was what was behind Israel's original request to get a king? Remember how they wanted a king like all the nations? Because they looked at the nations around them who had these, these kings and they saw how impressive these kings were. They saw how powerful they looked, how influential and successful. And the Israelites looked at that and they thought, hey, that's what we want. We want to be like that. We want a king like that. Which was really a rejection of God as their king. Uh, we talked about that. Now, But this focus on outward appearance... Not only was it behind Israel rejecting God, but it was also behind Saul's downfall. Because what was Saul's biggest flaw in life? It was the worship of himself, the worship of his own image. Remember how he set up that monument to himself 
It was all about, look at me, look how great I am. And the reason Saul, come, uh, Saul crumbled under people-pleasing was because he, he, he thought too much about himself and he worried so much about how people saw him. And so Saul was focused on outward appearance. The Israelites focused on outward appearance. Even Samuel focused on outward appearance. And so God says to Samuel, look, the way you see things and the way I see things are two very different things. And God explains why in verse 7. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. That's saying that God's assessment of people very different to ours, because God can see something that we can't. We can't see the heart, but God can. He can see right to the core of a person. Uh, And that means that the things that impress us are not the things that impress God. See, we're impressed by how someone looks, whether they are good-looking or not. Uh, We're impressed by the way people present themselves, whether they wear nice, fancy clothes or whether they uh, just shop at Big W. Um, God's not like that. He doesn't care how you dress or how you look. He's not, he's not taken by whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. That, that doesn't factor him into his assessment. He's not worried about whether you are highly educated and have a high-paying job or whether you have something else. Those things don't factor for God. I mean, they're the things that we're impressed by. We look at those things and we go, Now, there's someone going somewhere. There's someone you want to be hanging out with. There's someone you want in leadership. But God, he doesn't, none of those things factor because God doesn't look at the outward, he looks at what's on the inside. He looks at the heart. And that is such an important statement that God looks on the heart. That's something that I want to to think about a bit more with you this morning. Okay, what does it mean that God looks at the heart? What are the implications of that? Let's just think through some of them now. Uh, first of all, this statement in verse 7, do you know what it is? It's a massive critique of our culture. Actually, it's a critique of any culture because you know, even in Samuel's day, they um, put a lot of emphasis on outward appearance. Even Samuel did that. And that's always the way. Back in Samuel's day, anyone who looked like a warrior was basically idolised. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case today for us, but, but every culture in one way or another has certain things that, to do with appearance that is seen as that that's what, you know, that's what life is about. And if it was a case back then that outward appearance was, was such a focus, then how much more is it for us today who live in a culture that's dominated by images? Okay, everywhere you look, there's... There's images and pictures trying to tell us this is what matters in life, how you look. Okay, we're constantly being bombarded with images about the perfect look, the perfect lifestyle, the perfect body, the perfect house, the perfect car. All of these things constantly bombarded saying this is what matters in life. This is what life is about, getting these things. That's all about outward appearances. You know, even food today, 
uh, has to look impressive. How many shows are there on TV about food and about how it has to look? Uh, what's an influencer today? It's not someone who writes books and teaches at a university. It's someone who models clothes and makeup on Instagram. An influencer. See, it's all about looks. The appearance. That's the culture we live in. Now, it's not, it's not like there's anything wrong with looking good. Um, you know, God created a beautiful world. Uh, obviously, looks are a good thing. <clears throat> uh, the trouble with our culture <clears throat> is that our culture mostly believes that there's nothing beyond what you can see and touch. And therefore, outward appearances in our culture are everything. Okay, they're idolised. They're the main pursuits of virtually every Australian. Trying to acquire something that's all about appearance. Something that can be seen and touched. And so we live in this culture that worships things seen, which means for verse 7 could be, um, not only does man look on the outward appearance, but man worships the outward appearance. And that's certainly the culture that we live in. And we need to realise that that is such a different approach to the lifestyle that God has revealed in his word. Okay, the life that really matters. According to God, the, the deepest joys and the things of most significance are actually the things unseen. Okay, the things of eternity. They're the most significant things. They're the things that are actually worth pursuing because they're the things that last. Uh, what is God on about in people? He's on about changing them from the inside. His spirit changing their hearts. And so if we were to ask the question, you know, if we're to see differently, if we're to see from God's perspective, what is it that makes someone truly beautiful? You know, what is a truly beautiful woman? What is a truly beautiful bloke? Uh, not that I normally use that sort of expression, but what, what makes someone truly beautiful? It's the inner life. Okay, not the, not the fading exterior, but the inside, a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. Or if we were to ask, what is the perfect lifestyle from God's perspective? Okay, it's, it's not um, having the most stuff. It's actually seeking first the kingdom. See the difference in how God sees and how we see. Okay, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And here's what happens. When God opens your eyes to see the gospel, you know, to see Jesus in all of his glory, <clears throat> what actually happens is you do start to see things differently. You start to see how or see as God sees. You start to value what God values. And in many ways, that's a gradual thing. You know, it's like your eyes are being slowly opened up more and more to be able to see things from God's perspective. And uh, what will actually happen in your life is that there's that, that battle, that inner heart battle between valuing the things God values and valuing the things that the world values. Uh, but this is a battle that we do need to be engaged in, and more so for us because of the culture that we live in, because there's such an emphasis on outward appearance and worshipping the things of of outward appearance, uh, we, need to, we need to fight this battle and uh, 
Embrace God's perspective. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Another application of this would be how we interact with other people. And James has this very interesting um, little account in James chapter 2 where he says, imagine two people walk into church one day and uh, one guy is dressed in um, designer clothes, you know, very flash-looking person, and then in comes someone who's dressed like a homeless person. And he says, look, if you show special attention to that fellow dressed in the nice clothes, but kind of treat the, the other one like, you know, hey, get out of my way. He says, you've actually, you're, you're just like a corrupt judge. You're treating people in an unjust way. And uh, you know, that's something worth thinking through. You know, we, to, we do tend to judge people on how they look. I mean, some of us here probably are more likely to show more patience to someone who is good looking uh, than someone who is uh, not good looking. Or we're more likely to make unfair assessments of someone's character just because of how they look. See, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Uh, this, this statement, it actually it impacts who we choose as leaders, doesn't it? Okay, because when it comes to leaders, uh, we tend to be attracted to those who have lots of charisma. Uh, those who are outwardly impressive, uh, maybe those who have um, lots of education, very polished in their presentation and speech. But do you know, none of those characteristics even come into it when the Bible describes what a good leader is. Because a good leader is someone who has character, godly character. That's what makes a good leader. See, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Uh, this, this statement also has implications for how we think about worship. You know, how we think about corporate worship, what we're doing today, gathered here like this. The Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so, so how should you prepare yourself to come here today? Where, where should the emphasis lie in your preparation for coming to corporate worship? It has to be the heart, heart preparation. Uh, we read earlier where Jesus quoted Isaiah saying, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He says, In vain do they worship me. Why does he say that? Because he was speaking to guys who were all about outward appearance. You know, he had an appearance of a life of law keeping, and yet inwardly, just living for sin and self. And you need to ask yourself, um, you know, if God looks on your heart in worship, what does he see? Does he see someone who, who comes and, and what you're doing in here is just the overflow of the rest of your life? Or is being here something very different from life out there? Another implication, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. Another implication is that ha this has to shape what we teach as a church. Because what are we aiming at in our teaching? Are we aiming at conformity to a list of kind of Christian-y kind of rules? You know, Christians are those who um, don't swear, um, 
don't get tattoos, uh, don't um, play sport on Sundays, you know, all those kind of um, those rules. Uh, is that what a Christian is? Is that what we're trying to teach and encourage? Is that the focus of it all? Of course not. The Lord looks on the heart. And so we need to be thinking about what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has a new heart, a, new heart, a heart changed so that life flows out of that. Uh, remember that time when Jesus confronted a rich young ruler who, who came up to him one day and said, look, I just want to make sure I'm going to heaven when I die. What do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. I just want to make sure I get to heaven. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, well, how, how are you going with the law? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I've done all that. I'm a good boy. I don't do big, bad sins. And so Jesus went on to talk about, well, what about, what about your generosity? How do you go being generous? And instantly the fellow thought, I don't want to know about this, and walked away. See, it's, it's easy to say, look, I don't do bad stuff. You know, I don't steal, I don't cheat, um, I pay my taxes, all those things. And yet, is there a heart changed? Are you a person who has been changed by the Spirit so that there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you know, generosity, integrity? See, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In fact, one more implication. Last one, and that is that verse 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Do you know that actually takes us to the very heart of the gospel? The very heart of what Christianity is all about. Because if you think about it, if the Lord looks on the heart, if he sees you truly, if he sees what you are really like and not the image that you try to project of yourself, what does God see when he looks at you? What does he see in the depth of your being? Does he see an undivided loyalty to his kingship? Does he see a heart motivated by his glory and his kingdom? Does he see a heart filled with love for him and love for others? Does he see a servant heart? Is that what he sees when he looks into you? Now, if we're honest, we would have to say, no, he doesn't. He sees, what does God see? He sees divided loyalty. Yeah, he sees some good intentions, but he also sees the selfish intentions of our hearts. He sees all of the pride, all of the lust, all of the envy. He sees the bitterness. He sees the fears. He sees the duplicity. He sees the unbelief. He sees us as we truly are. And if God can see all of that, how can he still love us? How can God see you as you really are and still love you? And the answer is the cross of Jesus. Because on the cross, what happened? Jesus, the one who is perfect, right to the core of his being, what did he do? He offered up his life as a sacrifice to pay for all of our sin, all of these heart problems. Jesus took them upon himself, paid for them in full. And so through the death of Jesus, you can be forgiven of all of those things. 
forgiven and restored. And not only that, Jesus actually gives you a new heart. Okay, through faith in him you receive a new heart so that you change from the inside. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 22. It says, Through the death of Jesus we can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. How about that? See, it's only through Jesus that God can look on your heart and still love you. So there you go. We can see God's perspective of circumstances, very different to ours. God's perspective of people, very different to ours. The third thing we see here, though, is God's perspective on the king. So let's go back to this story with um, Samuel checking out the um, sons of Jesse. And uh, so Eliab, uh, he's rejected. Next up comes, um, who is it? Uh, Abinadab. And uh, the Lord says no to that one. Next up is Shammah. Uh, So they're actually going down by order of age, um, as we learn in the next chapter. Anyway, Shammah's rejected. Uh, Then all seven sons, no, 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 no. And no. Okay, all seven. Rejected. And you can imagine how confusing that would be because God had told Samuel one of Jesse's sons is going to be anointed as king. And to all of them, no. And so Samuel asks the logical question, are all your sons actually here? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, there's still another one. Um, uh, you know, what's his name? Um, that little guy, we, we call him little fella. Yeah, he is Dave. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, so Samuel goes, look, we're not, not starting the meal until he comes. And so everyone just sort of sits around while someone goes and finds David. And David comes in and uh, it says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And um, that's actually a helpful point because when it says the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance, we can jump to the, the wrong conclusion to go, oh, that means God only likes ugly people. <laughs> but, but clearly that's, that's not the case because he uh, chose um, David, who apparently looked all right. Uh, but why is David chosen, though? It actually has nothing to do with his appearance. In fact, the emphasis here is that he is the little one. Okay, David's the youngest in the family, and, and at this stage he is a young, uh, like a young fellow, uh, probably um, not very tall, and no one would have expected that he would be the one chosen. And we know that because his dad didn't even bother to invite him to the meal, just left him out in the paddock with the sheep. See, no one would have thought David would be the one. And that's what's emphasised here. It's the unexpectedness of God choosing David, David of all people. It just it didn't fit. You know, he's the youngest, he's the shortest, and yet that's the one God sets his heart on. And Samuel uh, takes the horn of oil, puts it on David, and anoints David as king. And uh, then the passage ends. Uh, we have this section in chapter, um, in verses 14 to 23, which we're not going to go into too much detail. But you would think that at this point, that what would happen is that David would go to um, Saul and say, you know, 
get out of here, I'm now the king. And Saul would go, okay, and, and wander off, uh, never to be heard of again. And yet that's not the case. Saul still stays on the throne. And the irony is David becomes Saul's servant, which is just incredible because we've got the chosen king now serving the rejected king. And it's, it pretty much stays like this for the rest of 1 Samuel. And so again, there's this difference of perspective, how God sees and how the people see. Because from all appearances, who's king in Israel at this stage? Saul. And yet from God's perspective, who is the king? It's David. Okay, David is the unseen king. It'll be like that for the rest of 1 Samuel. And do you know, there, just to cut a long story short, there are so many ways that, G, that David points us to Jesus in this chapter. Because just like David, Jesus is the kind of king that you would never expect. You would never expect Jesus to be the ultimate king, okay? the Messiah king, the king who came into the world to deal with the main problem with this world and to, to be the risen one who is going to come back one day and make everything right again. Okay, bring peace to the world. You would never expect that it would be Jesus. No one expected it on the day because when they saw Jesus in the way that he was interacting with people, they thought, you know, this can't be the one. Look at who he hangs around with. He hangs around all the, the rejects. How could he be the one? But the thing that threw people the most about Jesus, it wasn't that he was short like David. It was actually that he suffered Okay, that he was rejected, that he was crucified. See, no one would have thought that this one who was hung on a cross could actually be the king of the universe, the one who's going to come back and fix everything one day. Who would have thought? Because Jesus, he just didn't fit with the world's categories of success. He didn't fit with the world's category of power, of beauty, of fame. He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, and yet he's the one that we can pin our hopes on to renew the whole world one day, because he is the king. But the other connection to Jesus in this passage is the fact that like David, Jesus right now is the unseen king. Okay, Anyone in Samuel's day would, would look and they would go, Saul's king. And yet who was the real king? David. And it's just like that today. You ask anyone on the street, who is the king? And you'll get a whole kind of, all kinds of answers. But see, there's a difference between how God sees and how we see. Right now, it doesn't look like Jesus is the king. You know, you watch the news and there's all this stuff going on in the world and it looks like it's all out of control and it's going nowhere. Like it's all about to fall in a heap. And yet if we had God's perspective, we would see it a whole lot differently. We would see that everything's working according to a plan. And at the end of that plan comes a day when Jesus will return. And he will put everything right. Because he is the king. He's the king right now. So the, the main thing from this passage is, where does that leave you? Have you embraced Jesus as your king? That's the only thing that matters, that Jesus is your king and then you've received that new heart from him because he's the only one who can change you from the inside. Okay, Man looks on the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks on the heart.